First Peter chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the, God, the, the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will, will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening recognizing that there are some people here that are discouraged, some people that are willing to give up. And Lord, we pray that this message in 1 Peter would be something custom-tailored for their soul. Lord, that they would sense your fatherly care, that you love them, that you want to guide them, that you don't want them to give up, but you want them to be able to run and not grow weary, to walk, not faint. So, Lord, we pray that you fill this room with your Holy Spirit, illuminate our minds, so we fall a little bit more in love with you. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen. Where does discouragement come from? Have you ever thought about what makes us discouraged? I think if you boil it down, discouragement often comes from hardship. Hardship. And not just any hardship, not just any trial, but especially hardship that feels like it says something about you. It's not just the fact that you have a lot of homework this week. It's the fact that you are not able to complete the homework. It's not the fact that you have a hard test this week. It's the fact that you will not be able to do well on the test. And so you feel like it says something about you, that you are a failure. You are a D student. It's not the fact that you're single. It's the fact that you feel like everybody else has somebody and you just aren't wanted. It's not the fact that you went evangelizing, shared Jesus with somebody else. It's that it seemed to be unsuccessful. So maybe if someone else has a good story, maybe if someone else was able to share with somebody else and they got saved, they received it well, they aren't a failure, but you are. And so the hardship that often feels the most heavy is the hardship that we feel communicates something about us as believers, as Christians. But I want you to know something, that if you are discouraged, you are in good company with some of the most spiritual heroes of the Bible. You have Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18, if you remember, 
Here was a prophet of God who had called down fire from heaven and consumed sacrifices. The prophets of Baal were looking upon this man who was holy, who was righteous, and more powerful. His God was more powerful than any of the prophets, any of the priests that they had known. But what happened in the next chapter? If you remember, Queen Jezebel says that she wants to kill Elijah, and he runs away for his life, is depressed, and even is suicidal. He's hiding in a cave, saying, Lord, I don't even know why I'm here anymore. King David was the same way. King David, when Saul was upset with him, would throw spears at him, he would run for his life from Saul. He was hiding. And we know that at one point, I mean, we hear the story about David the hero, that he fought Goliath and he was brave, that he took Goliath's own sword and cut his head off. But did you know that the king of Gath, where Goliath was from, King Achish, if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 21, you don't have to turn there, but David, as he's running away from Saul, in discouragement, did you know that he pretended to be crazy? That he was drooling on his beard. He was scratching doors. He pretended to be out of his mind so that he wouldn't be captured and destroyed by the enemy. The same hero. Even the best and strongest heroes, when they're discouraged, can be weak, just like anybody else. David, when he was hiding in a cave from Saul, wrote one of the Psalms. He said this in Psalm 142, verse 4. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. No one cares for my soul, he says. It was Elijah who said in the cave, God, I'm the only one who's left. And maybe you feel that way. And I'm sure that David in that moment could have been tempted to think, I didn't even ask to be king. Maybe you've been feeling that way. I didn't ask for this. I never wanted to be popular. I never wanted to be counted as one of the holier than thou's. I never wanted to be a person who was in the limelight and now everyone is persecuting me. Now bad things are happening. And maybe you're even asking, is God angry with me? And that's why all these bad things are happening. That's why I'm going through trials, hardships. It's because God is upset with me. Perhaps you've been in a situation when you were going off with your sports team to a championship and you rolled an ankle and now you can't participate. In eighth grade, my basketball team was going to a championship and I couldn't go because I got sick. I got strep throat or something like that. I don't even remember. But I remember being so bummed, so disappointed. And you feel like, what did I do to deserve this? But if hardship came as a result of your disobedience, if God chose to just give you bad trials, hardship, whatever, when you were a bad person, then what about Jesus, who endured suffering and hardship, though he had never done anything wrong? So right then and there, we have proof that people that suffer aren't suffering because God is angry with you as a believer. In fact, what I want to prove to you tonight is that all hardship is refining. That God doesn't use a trial to destroy you. He uses a trial to refine you if you call yourself a Christian today. When I was younger, I was terrified whenever my mom wanted to give me medicine. I'm not even sure why. It wasn't like needles. 
it wasn't even bad tasting medicine. I just didn't want medicine. And I was so terrified. I don't know. Maybe it was going to be poison. Maybe it was going to do bad things to me. That as a child, I would take laundry baskets and encage myself in them, hiding under the laundry baskets so that my mom couldn't get to me and give me medicine. I was terrified. Why? Because I had feared something that really wasn't there to harm me. It was there to help me. And so many of us are wanting our situations to change when what needs to change is not your situation, it's your perspective. In fact, when Elijah was in the cave, if you had time to read 1 Kings chapter 19 on your own, Elijah says, Lord, all the priests, all the prophets, they're all dead. I am the only one who's left. And what does God say? He says, listen, Elijah, what needs to change, paraphrase, what needs to change is not the situation, it's your perspective. I have 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to bow. So maybe you're in that situation. Maybe what followers of Jesus need is not an absence of adversity, but to see adversity in its proper perspective, that God is using it. A.W. Tozer once said, he's a pastor who's long gone, but he said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Oftentimes, we want the glory of victory without fighting the battle. We just want the experience of accomplishment, but not willing to get the bruises that it takes in order to get there. In Mark chapter 10, there's a a passage where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And his disciples are saying, Lord, could you just like do us one favor? Like, I have this wish. Do you think you could grant it? Can you permit me to sit on your right hand and this other guy to sit on your left hand? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And they said, yeah, 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 we can do that. Sure. They had no idea what they were asking for. They wanted honor, but they didn't understand the amount of suffering it would take to get there. In fact, Paul, when he was still Saul, knocked off his donkey. Jesus said to Ananias, he said, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. A.W. Tozer, in that quote, he continues on in the context. He says, the flaming desire to be rid of every unholy thing and to put on the likeness of Christ at any cost is not often found among us. We expect to enter the everlasting kingdom of our Father and to sit down around the table with sages, saints, and martyrs, and through the grace of God, maybe we shall. Yes, maybe we shall. But for the most of us, it could prove at first an embarrassing experience. Ours might be the silence of the untried soldier in the presence of the battle-hardened heroes who have fought the fight and won the victory and who have the scars to prove that they were present when the battle was joined. All of us want to sit around at a table with Paul the Apostle, with Jeremiah the prophet, David. But you might find yourself there without the battle scars to show that you are worthy to sit at the table. That's what he's saying essentially. And some of us are getting constantly burned by these trials. And some of you right now are willing to actually give up. But David 
as he's running away from Saul, also recorded this in the Psalms, in Psalm 37, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Tonight, I'm going to make it very simple for you. That God intends us, in this passage, to have three things pertaining to adversity. Three things. And the first thing is expectation. Expectation. You can write that down. In first thir- uh, verse 12, it says this. Beloved, do not think it strange considering, uh, concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing had happened to you. There was uh, a strange phenomenon where people were doing something really messed up, especially young people. They were trying to knock out random strangers in the street. Maybe you've seen it before. In one punch, trying to knock out people come up behind them and just whack them as hard as they could, a sucker punch, so that person would fall to the ground. And this person, unexpectedly, because who expects anyone to just knock them in the middle of the street, would knock them out. And sometimes a trial can feel like a sucker punch. It comes out of nowhere. Like you were just living your life, you are trying to be godly, and out of nowhere, everything is falling out of place. Well, why does Peter make this exhortation? Why does he write this? It's so that, remember, these are the outsiders, the people that are on the outskirts of society, marginalized Christians. He's writing them so that we can be prepared, so that we can see that punch before it comes at us. That we can be guarding ourselves, prepared, knowing exactly what it is that we are entering into. We're entering into a battle, and that's why we need our spiritual armor. Those of you that went to Haiti with us last year, you knew that we were to be prepared before we went over there. It was not going to be luxurious. We were not going to stay in a hotel. And because of that, we needed to make sure that we had all the preparations in place. All of you knew when we went to Haiti that there were going to be some times that we're sleeping and we're on the rooftops and you hear this cacophony of animal sounds, goats and then roosters that are roosting, I don't know, crowing in the middle of the night, wherever they're doing. I guess not roosting. In the middle of the night. It's just crazy. And if we were to go back, you know what to expect. We need earplugs. We need bug nets because we're going to be bitten all throughout the night. So you prepare yourself for the hardship. But just because there's a hardship doesn't mean you don't go. You go specifically because there's something else beyond the hardship. And that's why you go. You need to be prepared. And some of us need to be expecting that the enemy will try to bring us down so that we aren't discouraged, so much so that we are ready to give up. There are some things that are just reasonable. Like if you ask a girl out without wearing deodorant, you should expect to be rejected. And Jesus, when he was leaving, before he left this earth, Before he went to the cross, he told his disciples this in John chapter 16, verse 1. He said, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. So Jesus gave them a word so that they would be prepared. You might want to write this down. But God's word spoils suffering's surprise. God's word spoils suffering's surprise. 
since you know that Jesus said that in this world you will have tribulations, you can expect them. And when you expect them, you can prepare for them. The enemy instead always wants you to be caught by surprise so that when the trial happens, he can question God's character. Really? Weren't you promised joy? Weren't you promised peace? And look at you now, miserable. Look at you now, all of your friends have left you. You have suffering in your life. You're sick. Family members are sick. Everyone's making fun of you. Did you really think that God was going to be faithful? Because it doesn't look like faithfulness now. That's what the enemy does. In fact, remember when Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan? Why do you say that? It's because he was being used of Satan to actually say, Jesus, do you really have to go to the cross? Do you really have to suffer? I mean, like, come on. Like, there's got to be another way. And so, Jesus said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but mindful of the things of man. And if we are to be mindful of the things of God, that means that we should be listening to his words so that when these sufferings happen, it doesn't hit us like a sucker punch. Christians instead should expect hardship in a world that is broken. Paul writes in 2 Timothy verse 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So, should we be surprised when the world persecutes us? Should we be surprised when, quote-unquote, Christians persecute us, make fun of us? And in fact, when these things happen, we get really superstitious as Christians all of a sudden. As though some strange thing must have happened. I must have done something wrong. What did I do to deserve this? As if that's our relationship with God. Do a, a, right, a certain amount of right things so that God loves you and treats you well. And if you do a number of wrong things, God's going to punish you. That is not grace and that is not the gospel. That is not how we're to live our lives. So if you take heed to what God is telling you, then you can prepare today for tomorrow's trial. If you today pay attention when I say, hey, you're going off to college, and when you do, I'll, like, I'll text you, hopefully, if I remember, but most likely, I won't be there. I'm not going to college with you. I've done college. I don't need to enroll and be in debt again. So you're going to be off on your own, and when you do, here's what's going to happen. Someone's going to say, hey, let's go to this party. Hey, there's going to be a lot of cute boys, a lot of cute girls at this party, at this person's house, and there will be a little bit of alcohol. And you need to be prepared today for tomorrow's trial. Otherwise, you're going to be like, well, it's only one party, or maybe I can witness the people at this party while I'm drunk, while I'm smoking weed. Like, people think this way, and you, you think it's funny. But we will rationalize the most crazy things because, remember, the heart is deceitfully wicked. So today, we need to take heed to God's word. Prepare our hearts. So when we go off to college, you don't waste those four years, or maybe five for most. Those years that you're in college, you can maximize your potential. You're plugged into a church. And not just saying, well, I do go to the crew, the Campus Crusade for Christ. I'm in a, you know, campus ministry. That's great. Are you plugged into a church? Well, we'll figure it out when I get there. No, that's a bad decision. That is terrible. Instead, be thinking about, okay, 
I'm making a very important life decision where I'm going to spend four years of my life. Where is my community going to come from? The world or from the church? How am I going to stay connected? Prepare yourself today for tomorrow's trial. Second thing that we can take away from this is in verse 13. Joy. It says this, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. I love how the NLT puts it. It says this, Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed to all the world. Here's your next takeaway. There is joy in joining someone else's suffering. There is joy in joining someone else's suffering. Now, when you read that verse, if you're anything like me, you probably would have expected I would have went straight to James chapter 1, verse 2 through 3. Can it all joy when we enter various trials and the test of your faith will produce patience? I'll get there in a second. But there's something else. It's not just we're refined. That's true. We'll get there in a second. But there's actually, as you partake in someone else's suffering, there's joy there too. Let me explain how. Some of you know people in the fellowship, five years old, that have cancer. And to be able to be useful to someone like that, to stay up late, to suffer on their behalf, to be working hard to get other people to rally behind this person, to show love to that person. There's something that's honorable about that. There's something that's rewarding about that. It's not like you're dancing around happy, right? But to be able to be useful to someone who is in dire need, to be able to share in a friend's suffering when they're hurting, when someone is heartbroken, to be beside them, when someone is discouraged, when someone's family is going through divorce, and you get to be there for that person. There's something rewarding about that. Moses, when he saw the people of Israel, remember, he, he could have stayed in Egypt all his life and been a prince. But the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 that he considered the sufferings of Christ as far greater riches than the riches of Egypt. And there is a glory that we receive when we share in the sufferings of Christ, especially when you're persecuted for his namesake, especially when people judge you just by the way that you're living your life in holiness. There is a reward to that because not every single person gets that privilege. So the question is, can God trust you with the trial? Acts chapter 5, verse 41, this is how the disciples saw it. They said, after they had been persecuted, it says they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Can God trust you with a trial? Pastor Lloyd uses the example of the time, but every ship that is large up top needs enough ballast below the surface, below the sea, to keep it afloat. Otherwise, it's top-heavy and it'll sink. There are a lot of people that are raised to prominence even in the church and they need suffering ballast to keep them grounded and from that ship from sinking. Otherwise, you're filled with pride. Look at my accomplishments. Look at what I've done. 
And so a person who suffers for the name of Christ, that person is blessed because there is glory that you will receive as a reward, as part of your inheritance. And that's why Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He says, if you have the weight of suffering and the weight of glory, you can't even compare with the two on the scale. They're on completely different levels. And we know that there are some of you here that are suffering with things that are pretty significant. But what God would want you to know is that the glory that you'll receive far outweighs those things. And then, yes, we can rejoice because we will be refined. As I said in James, can all joy when we enter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces fortitude, patience, that you're refined in the fire. And so a person who's refining silver puts it in the fire, and they know that the thing is rid of all of its impurities when they can see the reflection in it. And so this fiery trial, the strange, weird, fiery trial that we're enduring, God is keeping us in that fire so that he can see the reflection of himself in you and I, to make us more like him. And it's the sufferings that often will draw us closer and closer to God. And how we suffer, how we look to the world in our suffering, proves that there's something fundamentally about the follower of Jesus. Because we're not just living for our time here on earth. We're living for eternity. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, In a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as men and women apart. People characterized by a fundamental joy and certainty in spite of conditions, in spite of adversity. Third thing that we receive, peace. Verse 14, peace. It says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. So maybe you haven't thought about this, but in a trial... God sends his spirit so that you can endure it. That's your third point and your third takeaway for tonight. That in a trial, God sends his spirit so you can endure it. I was listening to a theologian talk about this before, but when Jesus was on the cross, think about this. For those of you that want to, like, we're up here right now, want to go deeper, and all of you that really don't care because you're not like a Bible nerd, that's fine. Let us geek out for two seconds. On the cross, Jesus says something really weird. He said, I thirst. Jesus wanted something. I thirst. Like, he never, when he was in the desert, hungry, didn't eat anything for 40 days, 40 nights, he didn't say, I'm hungry. But on the cross, he said, I thirst. And there are a lot of, there's a, a school of, of thought that believes that when he's on the cross, what he's saying is, if you think about Jesus when he was with the woman at the well, he said, I have water, living water, that if you drink of it, you'll never thirst again. Look at that in connection. What he's saying is, the Spirit, because he was bearing the wrath of God, was not there to comfort him in the darkest hour. That's what some people believe. So when he says, I thirst, it means more than I'm thirsty. It means that at that moment, there was no spirit of comfort to take away the pain. Because the wrath of God was upon him. Now, if that's true, you and I 
Remember, because this verse says, blessed are you because the Spirit of God rests upon you in the suffering. Now, some of you may think about like, what if someone held a gun to your head and said, if you don't deny Jesus, I'm going to shoot you. And you wonder like, would I have enough faith? I don't know. Well, here's the thing that should comfort you. Don't think about whether or not in that moment, whether or not you have enough faith, because the Bible says God deals to each one a measure of faith. If God trusts you with that trial, he will, by his Holy Spirit, give you the ability to endure it. But if that's true, then get this. If you are in a trial right now, and you're wondering, should I obey? Like, you're in class, everybody is perverted. Everybody's saying things that are nasty. And you know you should, you should say something. Or at least not participate. And you're like, but I don't know. I might be labeled. I might be like outcasted by my friends. I don't know. The Spirit will give you the ability to endure it. Maybe something tragic has happened in your life. God forbid, but maybe it has. And you have no idea how you're going to get through this. The Spirit is with you so that you can endure it. That's why the Bible says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I'm not saying it'll be easy. What I am saying though is, don't think about the situations that you can't endure. Because apart from Jesus, he said, you can do nothing. But Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why do you say that? In the context, he says, whether I have a lot or I have a little, I know how to deal with much, and I know how to deal with having nothing, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The, the, the secret is, do you have the spirit to endure the trial? Because if you do, don't worry about what you're going to say in the moment. You know you're supposed to say something. You're supposed to evangelize. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Just go up and do it, and God will be, will equip you with the words to say. You don't have to have the confrontation. Like there's somebody that you like, you need to ask forgiveness from, or they've offended you, and you need to set them down and not gossip to somebody else. I don't know if I can deal with it. It's not about you. It really isn't. It's about the Spirit empowering you to endure it. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. You probably can. But that's why God has not left us alone. In fact, Jesus said, I will leave you with a helper, a comforter, the Holy Spirit. That's why he's here. He is to accompany you wherever you go. None of you, when you came here, hopefully left the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit at home. It's like, oh, man, I, I was like totally ready for this confrontation, but like I left the Holy Spirit at home. I have to go back, pick him up, drive him over here, and then we can do this together. You all have the Spirit within you if you call upon the name of Jesus. And you can tap into that resource at any moment in time. Whenever you say, Lord, would you help me? We went through a series in the beginning of 2015 called A Society Free of Anxiety. Haven't heard it, haven't been with us back then, look it up. Society Free of Anxiety, it's on the podcast, tinyurl.com slash impactpodcast. Pretty sure that's true. That's it. Go on the website, you can find it. In that, we talked about this. Your heart will only be as heavy as the burdens you choose to carry. Because anxiety in the heart of the man makes it stoop, and because... The reason why we're so anxious, depressed, it's because we're holding on to burdens that we're supposed to be casting upon the Lord. Psalm 55 verse 22 says, cast your burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain you. He'll never permit the righteous to be moved. So if you're 
weighed down, burdened, tired, anxious? The question is, have you casted your care to the Lord in prayer? Because the peace of God can guard you from all worry, but you have to first be willing to submit yourself to the Lord. Now imagine, just imagine, if we lived in such a way that trials didn't move us. Trials wouldn't discourage us. Imagine what the world would, would think and see in us if trials didn't affect us in that kind of a way. I can imagine the world being like Moses when Moses is at the burning bush. Remember? He looks at the burning bush. What did he say? What would the world say? Here is a bush that doesn't burn. I must now turn aside and look at this great sight. Why doesn't this, bur- this bush burn? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the midst of a fiery furnace, stood there as an, as a, as an example because Christ was in their midst. Nebuchadnezzar, looking upon them, I must look at this great sight. These three, well, four, I threw three in, and there's a fourth one there somehow, who's standing with them in the midst of their darkest hour, why they do not burn. It is a fiery trial, but it shouldn't be strange because we can expect it. If we expect it, we can have joy because we're partaking in Christ's sufferings. If we partake in his sufferings, then we can know that God will give us the peace to sustain us through the situation. Now, a couple of final verses. Verse 15, it says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's manners. Thankfully, that's none of you. You know, you haven't killed people, stolen, probably haven't done evil, and you definitely haven't been a busybody in other people's matters. Quick side note, bonus, this is free of charge. Can we be a people that doesn't have to listen to every bit of gossip? Can we be a person that isn't interested in other people's matters? That doesn't have to know other people's situations? Whatever happened to so-and-so? Why did I leave the school? Can we be a people that doesn't want to find out, that doesn't need to know? If it doesn't pertain to you, you say, you know what? I don't need to know. Continues on. It says, yet if anyone, in verse 16, suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? So what he's saying here is, listen, if we think trials are bad for Christians, what in the world will be the end of the person who doesn't trust in God? You think trials are bad, and you're a Christian suffering through them. Now, if you aren't a believer in Jesus, I had a conversation with a friend the other day. He probably won't listen to the podcast, so I'll just mention this. But he asked me a very good question. He's not a Christian. We're hanging out for a little bit, talked for about 45 minutes. And he said, why does God permit suffering? Why does he allow that? And I said, well, first got to ask the, the first question, which is, where does suffering come from? Who contributes to suffering? Where does evil come from? Well, all of us do bad things. So if we are a part of the problem, if the solution is getting rid of all evil and all people that do evil, he'd have to take care of us. He'd have to judge us. Unless we're, like, biased and, like, as long as he takes care of all the evil people except me. If he gets rid of all the people that do bad things except me, I'll be happy. Well, that's selfishness, and that's bad, too. So on the day of judgment, 
whose goodness will you be resting upon? The goodness that you've completed throughout your life? Because God will judge you based on every good deed and every bad deed that you've done in your life. So you think you're a good person and you're going to stand up before God and God's going to be like, so, why should I let you into heaven? I'm like, well, I've been a good person. And he's like, oh, really? Two days later, still pulling out things. Or are you going to say, I have nothing. I am nothing, but I trust in the blood of Jesus Christ on his righteousness. Not so-and-so. I know so-and-so is probably a pretty good person, but if he's even a great person, he might be able to somehow squeeze in by his own goodness, but he can't save me, which isn't true, by the way. There's none good. But there was one person who was so good that he broke all the rules. He played by the rules, but he himself was God, and so his righteousness can be imputed to me too, as long as I accept his free gift. Here's a scary quote by Randy Alcorn. Pay attention to this. He says this, For Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. For unbelievers, it is the closest they will come to heaven. What will be the end for the sinner who doesn't trust in God if the righteous one is scarcely saved? Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. NLT says it this way, so if you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you for he will never fail you. In case you've been taking notes throughout this whole series called Living Hope, this is the theme verse of the entire book. You're suffering Commit yourself to the Lord and keep on doing good because God won't ever fail you. So the question I think that pops up in my mind is, who's in control in the midst of suffering? In the midst of hardship, who's on the throne? And can we trust that guy who's on the throne? Or am I going to try to take matters into my own hands? So this I've, past couple weeks, I've had a revelation about myself. Want me to share it with you? Well, since you asked. Here's the revelation. I am okay with uncertainty only when it's on my terms. Like, for instance, if I don't know what I'm going to do in the future, I'm perfectly fine with this. Like, I'm okay, like, I don't know where I'm going to, if I'm going to continue school. Maybe I'm going to get my master's degree. Maybe one day I might move to Africa or something. I don't know. I'm just playing with it. Like, if I'm undecided, I'm okay with that. But if I don't know what God's going to do, I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay if I've left a pending decision to somebody else and they're just not getting back to me. Like, do you think we could do this? We're like, I don't know. I'll get back to you in a week. Like, so when are you going to give me the answer? They're like, hey, you want to hang out next week? Sure, I'll get back to you in a couple days. And they haven't told me. That drives me crazy. I want to know. But faith is trusting though you can't see. Putting your faith in Jesus means that Okay, I, ha I don't have it figured out, but that's okay because you have it figured out. That God really does work all things together for good. So here's your application. Commit to God and pursue him. Commit to God and pursue him. He's a faithful creator. You can trust him. You're suffering and you don't have all the answers. And this is precisely the problem. In fact, this is what makes this teaching so difficult for me is that I am so analytical, I want all the answers right now. 
Why am I suffering? What did I do to deserve this? What good will come out of this? And some of the most hard times of my entire life, I figured God was going to get back to me. Like I sent an email, dear Lord, um, I'm suffering. If you could get back to me in like maybe a couple months and let me know why I suffered in the first place, like maybe someone gets saved through this, that'd be really cool. Two years later, I have no idea why that happened. But exercising faith means that I see with my ears and not with my eyes. I listen to the voice of God, and God's word is a thing that I can trust in. I don't have to know all the answers. I don't have to know what the reason is why I went through all these things. But Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. At some point, you got to trust the guy. Like, God. But at some point, you got to put your faith in him. And nobody likes it if you've been best friends with somebody for a really long time, and you're still, like, making sure they're not going to flake on you. Like, I told you I was going to be there. Like, are you really going to be there? Are you really going to remember my birthday? I remember your birthday. I remember every single year. Like, I don't know, just maybe, like, maybe this is the year you're going to forget. Maybe this is the year you abandoned me as your friend. Like, maybe you have a friend like that, a friend that's just, like, always asking to hang out every single day because they're afraid, like, you won't be friends. And they're always trying to one-up the other friends. Like, I can do better. Forgive me. It's just, like, calm down. It's okay. I will be your friend. At some point, we got to recognize God loves you. That he is your heavenly father. You're not a stranger. You're not some stranger. You belong to God because he's purchased you by his blood of his will. He sought you out. You weren't even looking for God. You were a simple person. You're running away, doing your thing. You're like, la, 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 whatever. And then God says, I choose you. I want you for my kingdom. And I love you. And I will die for you. I think a God like that can be trusted. In conclusion, in review, First point was, God's word spoils suffering surprise. Second point, there is joy in joining someone else's suffering. Thirdly, in a trial, God sends his spirit so you can endure it. In Luke chapter 22, closing thought. Remember, Peter had failed. He was tested by God. He had entered a trial where he was asked, are you one of the followers of Jesus? And he denied Jesus three times. He failed the trial all three times. And maybe you're in that position where you'd like to believe that you're a person of faith, like you're not movable. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, and that every turn, every chance you get, every trial, every test, you fail. You thought that this was the year, like, I will not look at another young woman ever again with lust. It will never happen ever again. And it happens. You're tempted, and, and these things happen. And you feel because you're such a failure, remember, the discouragement that is the most powerful is the one that you believe says something about you. And you feel, as a failure, I can never minister to anybody else. That's it. I'm disqualified. What, you know, in what way could I ever minister to somebody else based on my own personal experience of failure? Well, first of all, Peter wrote this, wrote this book after he had failed three times. Here's something else, though. 
Jesus said this to Peter. After he said, listen, Satan's going to want to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. I'll let you know in a closing thought. Failing a test, failing a trial, feeling like a failure does not disqualify you from strengthening those around you. Just because you feel like you're a lousy, crying mess going through a really hard time does not mean that you can't comfort somebody else who's going through a really rough situation. And in fact, what often gets us out of discouragement is the fact that I can minister to somebody else in their suffering. I heard a a pastor say this once, your greatest misery can be your greatest ministry. And sometimes the thing that is the hardest for us to wrap our minds around, why did I go through this in the first place? You can twist that around. You can turn your mourning to joy, the water into wine, that Jesus can use even the hardest of all circumstances and bring glory out of it so that you can strengthen somebody else.